There's an age-old debate as to whether leaders are born or made. Maybe it's a little bit of both, but we can't underestimate how circumstances and upbringing shape our identities, and leadership is all about identity. Welcome. I'm your host, J.B. Adams. Each week, I bring you conversations with leaders, and in this series, we're talking with leaders who practice servant leadership. Our philosophy is that a leader is anyone who influences change. So on this show, we want to understand not just what leaders do, but who they are and how leaders can be effective in a rapidly changing world. We hope you'll learn some things about our guests, about our topic, and also about yourself. This is Leadership Life Stories. You can find episodes of this and all other Victor Media shows on our website at victormediagroup.co. And if you like what you're hearing, subscribe and connect with us on your favorite social media platform. Today's show is part two in a series with Dr. Rick Bommeljay, president of the Leadership and Listening Institute and the founder of the nonprofit organization, Listening Wisdom. He's had a 46 year career at Rollins College in Winter Park, Florida, where he's a professor in the Department of Communication, teaching courses on leadership and listening. He's also a coach, consultant, and speaker. Part one of our interview focused on how listening contributes to effective leadership and relationships. And as our interview continued, I asked Rick Bommeljay about his background to understand how his values were shaped by these early influences. Tell us where you were born. Rochester, New York. And where were you raised? I was raised in Rochester up through my sophomore year. Then we moved to Dallas, Texas for a year and then to just outside of Louisville, Kentucky for a year, uh, Fern Creek, Kentucky. Mm-hmm. And so I went to three high schools in three years. You consider yourself as part of what generation? Well, I'm in the baby boomer category. And what do you think that means? That's a label that um, folks that came back from World War II started having babies. Lots of them. <laughs> Well, what, and I'm one of them. What do you think defines your generation, or do you think that's it's too broad to be defined? A privilege, I think. Privilege defines that generation. When you look at the economic privilege overall, mm-hmm. um, I, I would say so. I, if you if you view the baby boomers from the end of World War II to the mid 1960s, right, we get right up to the cusp where everything blew apart (laughs) and it it was like leave it to beaver time right yeah for those of us baby boomers who remember yeah i'll bet you don't even know what leave it to beaver is i've seen it in reruns oh okay (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh i do want to ask uh what's the birth order of your family I'm the oldest of two. I have a sister who's eight years younger than me. Okay. And uh, this whole segment about backstory is an opportunity to talk about the early influences on your identity. So would you say that you identified with a, a race, a nationality, or an ethnicity? My grandparents on my father's side came from the Netherlands, Holland, and so I most identify with that uh, because it was a point of 
conversation. Um, every Friday, we'd go over to Grandma Bommel Jay's house. Uh, my grandfather died when I was uh, fairly young, about four or five years old. But uh, both of them emigrated from the Netherlands uh, with my grandfather's two brothers, I think. Mm-hmm. And they were laborers. Um, my grandmother worked at the YMCA as a maid. Mm-hmm. And my grandfather uh, cleaned buses for the Rochester Bus Transit Authority. So only two generations removed from working class immigrants. Yes. Let's talk a little bit about parental influence and uh, specifically your dad. Uh, my dad was a um, Marine. He um, quit high school when he was 16, got a signature from his father to join the Marines. Of course, that was the height of World War II. Mm-hmm. Um, saw some, never talked about it, but I know that he saw some really bad stuff. He was in Japan, um, got out of the service, uh, came back, uh, married my mother. He worked in the sewer, um, cleaning the sewer in, in Rochester, and then he got a job uh, building furnaces for the Lange Fuel Company. And that led to, over a period of time, they invited him to shift from uh, really contractor to sales try sales. And so he was out selling what he used to build. And that's how he got started. Now, uh, you and I have discussed this, so this is not a secret, but there's a turning point in your dad's career. So he had working class parents, immigrants. He had some military service and came back to Rochester to be working class, but he eventually wound up with a full professional career. What was that turning point for him? And did you get to observe that? I did. It was a, from a distance though, but, but I can kind of piece it together as years go by. My dad was a very quiet man. Um, I, I love my dad so much, but I didn't really know him mm-hmm. well, you know, um, but he was, um, Really humorous, funny, but there were a couple of turning points where he liked to draw. And somehow he got a job with Delco Company as a draftsman. Mm -hmm. And Delco was part of General Motors. And then one day, my dad came home and said, I just got a promotion to Dallas, Texas. Now, we're in upstate New York in the sun in in the snow country and we're going to the sun country right mm-hmm. and after a family discussion uh, primarily between my mother and father they said okay we're going to do it and it was um, dramatic change and my dad uh, now was performing a role in distribution in this huge warehouse got a must have got a great salary. Um, it was a significant job. We bought a nice new home, brand new home. We got a new car. You know, it was like, wow, what is this? You mm-hmm. know? 
And, and so kudos to him. I don't know what the backstory is for him on how that happened, but he must have worked extremely hard to get that break. Mm -hmm. And his career progressed to the point where, would you say that he had a comfortable retirement at the end? Was he satisfied? Well, he went from General Motors to General Electric. About a year and a half in, in Texas, they decided to transition that distribution warehouse center to another location. And so they offered him an opportunity to connect with General Electric, another company in Louisville, Kentucky. And so he took that opportunity. And so as I think about the past, he was not adverse to change. I mean, he made things happen. And so when he went to headquarters in this huge, huge plant in Louisville, Kentucky, where General Electric was, was uh, world headquartered, um, he, we used to have these young guys come over that worked with my father, and he had the opportunity to go into management, and he turned it down because he felt he wasn't ready. And these young guys who were all graduates of prestigious schools, I remember one guy graduated from Notre Dame, another guy from LSU, and they, they were saying, Abe, his name was Abraham, but he goes by Abe. Abe, what are you doing? I mean, you're cut for this role. And he, and he felt that it, he wasn't fully rounded out and he needed a complete sales background to be able to manage. And so they gave him the wish and he was sent to Orlando, Florida to sell air conditioning equipment. And that's how we eventually moved in Orlando. And when you uh, think about your dad, what are the things that you think he valued? Definitely family, definitely his marriage. I mean, uh, stability in terms of the relationship. He valued listening. Um, his customers loved him and he would always, always, I'd see him on the phone he would always, no matter what day, uh, what time, Sunday, 10 o'clock at night, he was there for them. And they loved him. I, I want to ask you about something that you just pointed out. So some of the things you mentioned about your dad, his work ethic, his uh, uh, love of family, I, I sense that these are all things that you can relate to and sort of embrace as your own values. But earlier you said that you felt like you didn't know him. Is that part of being a member of the baby boom generation? I think it, it could be. And he was a member of the greatest generation. Mm -hmm. And so he didn't express his feelings. Mm -hmm. But I'll give, you, I'll give you a short example of what happened in, in um, this was the first time that I saw him express his feelings. I had joined the army. And it, the night, it was a Sunday night, we're having dinner and I'm going to be 
leaving on the Greyhound bus station that night to go to the induction station. And as we're finishing dinner, I notice that he starts to cry. And he doesn't say anything. And the cries become sobs. Oh. And he was going to drive me to the bus station. He couldn't do it. My mother had it. <laughs> and we just embraced before I took off. And we never talked about that. Yeah, there were no We didn't have to. Yeah. Because I, I can imagine what he was thinking as he thought about his time in the military. And now we're in a new stage where his son is going into the army and possibly Vietnam. Mm -hmm. One thing he did say, though, uh, when I finished boot camp at Fort Benning, Georgia, is he said, after the reception was all done, ceremony and all that, and we were finished with that eight-week training, he said, you should have been a Marine. <laughs> Once a Marine, always a Marine. Semper Fi. Yeah. When we talk about the values that we recognize in someone else, these are often the same values that we want to nurture and develop in ourselves. When we come back, we'll learn about the early work and military experiences that further shaped Rick Bommelje. Stay with us. Our guest is Dr. Rick Bommeljay, and as our interview continues, we hear about some of the turning points that shaped his identity as a listening expert and leadership coach. Notice that the first turning point we discuss has two takeaways. What was one of the first jobs that you had out of high school? Actually, the first job that I ever had was unloading boxcars. Oh. But... But then that, that was very temporary. Uh, and then I, I was a uh, ice cream jerk. You mean a soda like shop? Soda shop? Right? Scooping ice cream. But that was very short. But I had an opportunity to be a part-time member of the coaching staff at the YMCA of Central Florida. Mm -hmm. And this was working with kids who were in an elementary school. I had Pershing Elementary School in South Orlando from grades three to six. Mm -hmm. I love sports. This was my first opportunity to coach. And it unleashed an incredible sense of power, if you will. And, and now, many, many years later, Quinn has kind of shared with me one of her 
nuggets. She says, when you find your purpose, it creates passion. Mm-hmm. And when you have your passion, it just explodes power. That's what happened in this job. Mm-hmm. And having the opportunity to work with these young boys, because it was, I had the boys, in uh, these various sports, flag football, basketball, softball, over this two and a half year period was incredible. And it, it was actually, I got so enthralled in it. It, it, it just consumed me. Um, I, quite frankly, I was not a good student at that point, was not ready for school, was not ready for college. But I went, and the high point, though, was with these kids. Mm-hmm. Just incredible opportunity. And I thought that ultimately this would be my career, mm-hmm. that when I came back from the service, because I had enlisted while I was in that two-and-a-half-year time frame, when I finished my degree, that's when I my two-year degree, that's when I went in the service. I thought when I got out, I'm going to get into sports management or something like that. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, for the sake of the takeaway, though, you mentioned unloading boxcars, right? Was that what it was? Yes. And soda jerk. Yeah. And apparently you were not passionate about those two jobs. What advice would you give to someone like, how do I find my passion? Does it, is it accidental or can you make it happen faster? I think you have to listen deeply to your, yourself mm-hmm. and not be afraid to move in a totally different direction if you're led to. Mm-hmm. Right? Something is leading you and why not go for it? Mm-hmm. I, I get so concerned when seniors, especially the young seniors at the college, get so anxious in their final term because they don't have the job lined up. And it's, it's like you have a wonderful opportunity to experiment. Mm-hmm. You've been equipped with a four-year degree. Now go out and do neat stuff. Yeah. Go make mistakes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so they make more mistakes than you ever think you could. Mm-hmm. Just try stuff. You can't be a part of the baby boomer generation and not have some memories of how the Vietnam War impacted your generation. Earlier, Rick Bommeljay described the farewell he received from his father, and here he describes a major turning point in his life, his military service during this tumultuous time. Whenever we talk to someone who has a military background, to me, the story always begins with whether you were drafted or enlisted. And in this case, it's, it's very important to mention that you were a young man at the time that America was fighting in the Vietnam War. So tell us yes. about that transition. Well, I really was not 
motivated to be a student. In fact, the first term, I went on academic probation because my grades were so bad. And at the time, the draft board was very, very conscientious in ensuring that students were what they called in phase. In other words, if you were going full time, it was expected that you would complete two years in two years, not two and a half. Mm. So when I went on probation, this moved me out of that range. And I was susceptible to getting the draft notice. Mm. It just happened that one of my friends, who was also a coach with the YMCA, had enlisted in the Army, and he was home on leave, and he was sharing with me uh, his experiences. And it really sounded fascinating to me, and I thought, this may be the thing to do, and if I enlist, perhaps I'll have more choices. Mm -hmm. and, and quite frankly, one of the choices I was hoping was maybe I would be sent someplace beside Vietnam. Mm -hmm. So when I finished my two-year degree, I then went in the Army, and um, that um, opened up a whole, new, a whole new opportunity for me. And you, as a result of enlisting, your hope was to not go to Vietnam, but you wound up going to Vietnam. Yeah, the way that worked out is I did get a choice, and my choice was rather than to be an infantryman, I decided that I wanted to be an administrative type. And I'm thinking even though you go through all the training and all that, probably it's going to be a little bit safer. Here I'm talking as like I'm a coward, right? But I, I'm speaking the way it was. And it's so just human. when I went to the next round of training, I was one day early on in that next assignment, was invited into this office with this guy um, who ex explained to me and two or three other guys, you are the, you have a two or a four year degree, he said. You have been levied into the Army Security Agency. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, what in the world is that, right? And, it, and he goes on to talk about how this is the spy part of the uh, army and how it's all about intelligence and gathering intelligence and all this kind of, the way he painted the picture was like, you're going to wear a trench coat and you're going to have a briefcase and, uh, you know, the handcuffs around your wrist connected to the briefcase. I got my first assignment to Fort Meade, Maryland, which was right across the street from the National Security Agency in Washington, D.C. And I'm thinking, this is going to be fantastic. This is where I'm going to be for the next two years and eight months. And 30 days later, I get my orders. And it's to Vietnam. 
Mm-hmm. And this is not the way the story's supposed to go. But I didn't know it at the time, but I was in a holding pattern as they went through this extensive background check to get a top secret crypto clearance so that I could handle all this sensitive information. So I shipped out. And when you were in Vietnam, you were not in combat, but you were still in some dangerous situations and you saw some stuff. Yes, well, most, I, I, I would say most if not all locations were susceptible to attacks. Mm-hmm. And ours was as well. Um, we were hit by rockets and mortars, and it's uh, very unsettling. What made it even more weird is that because we were the intelligence gatherers, we would take information, send it to National Security Agency. They would come up with like estimates of who was going to be hit when based upon what had been gathered. And so we would get reports that would say that our base was, there's a 95% chance that the 303rd RR Battalion on Long Bend, Vietnam would be hit by mortars Mm. between 12 and 6 a.m. So you go to sleep wondering, is it going to happen tonight? Mm -hmm. And sure enough, it happened. Wow. But for every every guy that was on the front line doing this incredible, incredible service to the country, Mm -hmm. there were at least 13 people in the back supporting in some way, shape, or form. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, my highest respect goes to folks who were in the trenches, in the field. They're the real heroes. Yeah. Well, I've said this to you before, and I'm going to say it again. Thank you for your service to our country. And I just want to ask, from this part of your Vietnam experience, because there's a little more coming up, but I do want to ask, what was your takeaway from being in the Army and serving in Vietnam? Well, I was single at the time, and I thought, as long as I'm going, at least I'm able to see a finely tuned military machine in operation. And getting over there and seeing the reality of what was going on, seeing that it it didn't work out that way. Mm -hmm. Um, Things were kind of weird, strange. And it was because there was not a well-defined sense of purpose. Mm -hmm. It was a political war and vets were victims. In spite of all that, it was an incredible experience. To me, my years in the service, two years, 10 months, and whatever the number of days, a very, very critical part of my life. One that I could say, I'm, I'm so proud to be able to have served the country. At the top of this show, I said that leadership is all about identity and military experience like that 
is identity defining. Our gratitude goes out to Dr. Rick Bommelje, not only for his service, but also for participating in this interview. There's more to his story, and next week we'll hear about another key turning point, how he met his wife, Quinn. We'll also hear about his greatest adversity and how he overcame it. That's next week in part three of our interview with Dr. Rick Bommelje. Please tune in. Thanks for listening. You can find episodes of Leadership Life Stories and all other Victor Media Group shows at victormediagroup.co. Leadership Life Stories was created by J.B. Adams and executive produced by Gerard Mitchell. Sound design and video production by Jeremy Harmson. It's the mission of Victor Media Group to make the world a better place by making ourselves better people. If you like this show, follow us at Victor Media Group on your favorite social media platform. This is J.B. Adams, and until next time, remember... Life is for service.